Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Jonah, the one about the fish, chapter 1. I say that tongue-in-cheek because usually that's all we know about Jonah, the one verse that talks about being in the belly of a fish, and that's about as deep as it goes sometimes. But there's so much to unpack with Jonah. We began a series last week in Jonah. Um, getting some feedback here. We good? Okay. Um, and uh, we're going to be looking at the second part of chapter uh, 1. And so we only read the first three uh, verses of Jonah where Jonah has got this call from God. The word of God comes to Jonah, this Israel prophet, and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to Gentiles, people that are not like you, this evil city uh, that are doing evil, and I want you to preach against it. And he says, no, thank you. Um, can someone fix the buzzing? Anybody got that? I don't know if this is turned off. Is this off? I think we're good. Um, and he says, no, no, thank you. And so here's Israel. Here's the prophet. Here's the one that, that knows the scriptures, knows that God's mission is bigger than just Israel. And he says, nope. He gets on a ship and goes in the exact opposite direction and goes to great lengths to avoid God's call, God's mission in his, in his life. And so this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 4 and see how things get worse for Jonah. And so Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, we'll read through the uh, verse 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account the evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? The sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord for us. This morning. And so we, we look at Jonah, and a little bit last week is, is I want to kind of give you just a brief kind of overview of the verses that we just looked at, just to kind of get, get the landscape. But I think there's a lot of implications and lessons that we can learn, just like last week, of what are the implications if we try to run from God and not listen uh, to his words. And, and, and it is sad, as I mentioned, that Jonah becomes this kind of kind of book of, you know, we, we watch Veggie Tales or, or it just becomes Sunday school classroom kind of stuff about fishes and, and getting eaten by whales and, and things like that, um, which doesn't mention a whale at all, but, but that's here or there. Um, but, but there's so much we can learn about Jonah's disobedience. And I'm so glad that by God's grace that he would actually put it in the scriptures. 
Um, because it's not a man who's going, yes, God, yes, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I will do, right? I mean, that, that's the nice, happy ending. And I think it speaks a lot to who we are, right? It's not that every time God speaks, we just say, yes, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. It's a lot of hope for me and maybe some hope and grace for you that we aren't always listening to God and what he's commanded of us. And so, so let's get a little orientation of, of, of what's going on here. So, so last week he, he, he says, nope, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to, to Joppa, and then I'm going to go take a ship to Tarshish, going in the exact opposite direction. Uh, so he's on the boat. But then notice right away in verse 4, the, the author, remember in the Bible, authors always have a theological agenda. They're, they're writing for a particular reason to draw something out so that we would go, oh, I see, okay, this is why this is here. It's not just to give us information or to tell a nice story, which is all true. It's not to just give us history, which there's history involved. It's not just to give a sociological study, which there could be some of that involved. But it's to say there's an agenda here that the writer wants us to know. Notice verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. The, 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 the writer's saying, I want you to know that God is the one throwing, sending this storm into Jonah's life and into the, these sailors, right? It's because of his, his disobedience. He's trying to run from God, and yet God is the one saying, no, 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 you can't run from me. You can try all you want, as we read last week, Psalm 139, right? We can try to run away from the presence of God, whether we go to the heights of the heavens or, or down to Sheol or, 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 or try to go to another country. God is still there with us. And it's God who is sending the storm to teach a lesson to Jonah. That's not by accident. It's not just because that was the time and the seasons when it was a stormy season. It, all of this is, is part of God's plan to show show Jonah who God is and what he's, he's like. And so, so, so keep that in your mind. Now notice the response of the sailors as the storm comes in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. Okay, we, we get that. But, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship and in the sea to lighten it for them. So a couple things here. Now, you could read that just real quickly and go like, okay, yeah, storm comes. Wouldn't you be scared if you're in a storm? But think about that. If you're a sailor, which I am not, most of us are not. Um, if you're a seasoned sailor, you're probably not going to be all that scared because storms come all the time. Now, if you are so scared that you are calling out to your gods, so here, here's, imagine there's probably a group of sailors and people on the ship, all different countries and backgrounds, so they got all this plethora of gods that they would have worshipped during that time in the ancient Near East, so they're, they're calling out to these gods, right? This is a, a big storm. Like, this is not just a little ripple on the lake or, or a ripple in the Pacific Ocean. I mean, this is, this is huge that they are, they are freaking out, right? Sailors know what to do when storms come. They come all the time. It's like what they're paid to do. They know how to do that, right? Do you ever watch, um, what's the, the, the Alaskan uh, uh, crab fisherman, guys, uh, terrifying? Uh, where, where, like, if you fall in the water, you die. Like, it's just cr crazy. The, the, you know, uh, greatest catch, isn't that what it's called? Uh, yeah, deadliest catch. Thank you. You can tell I'm, I'm really in tune with all that. But, um, but you, you, right, it's just, it's terrifying. Like, but when a storm comes, they know what to do. So they begin to unload cargo. Maybe if we lighten the ship, it'll, it'll help, help us get through the storm. I don't know about you, but when you get in a pinch and you start praying to God, it's probably going pretty bad pretty quickly, right? But notice Jonah's response to the storm. And to verse 5. And they hurled the cargo that was with them, the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now, 
I had fun this week as I was reading some stuff again, kind of getting into the text a little bit. And a couple commentators said, now we don't want to read into this too much, but the question was, did Jonah see the storm and then go down into the bottom of the ship and go to sleep? Or was he already sleeping in the ship as the storm was happening? It's a good question. Now, I don't want to read into this so much, but we could lean a little bit towards he saw the storm and said, I'm out. See you guys. I'm going to go take a nap. Totally oblivious, totally unconcerned with what's going on on deck and what's going on around him. That, that maybe this is what the, the writer of Jonah is trying to, to kind of bring out to us a little bit is to say, say look, he's, he's actually fast asleep. There's, there's, there's peril. There's turmoil. He doesn't give a rip. He's running from God. He's numb to everything. And he's going to go and have a nice little nap at the bottom of the ship. So keep that in your mind as we keep uh, reading. Now, what's also fascinating is there's something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And actually, in that translation, it says that he was snoring at the bottom of the ship. So do you know how you begin to snore? You have to be in a really deep sleep to begin snoring. So he's REM sleep cycle, 90 minutes in. He's just out two sheets to the wind, in the bottom of the ship where everyone's freaking out. And then notice how the, the sailor, the captain, comes back to Jonah in verse 6. It says, so the captain said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? And we could translate, actually, in the Hebrew, it means, what are you thinking? That's what that Hebrew means. I'm not making that up. What are you thinking, Jonah? Arise, don't miss this, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that he may not perish. Now, don't, this is, this is very intentional. What was Jonah's call in the first couple of verses in verse 2? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now here's the sailor saying, arise, call out to your God. The Gentile, pagan sailor who doesn't worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is acting more like a Christian than Jonah. Why aren't you calling out to your God who controls the sea? Like, this guy doesn't know. He's not, a, he's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. He doesn't know the scriptures yet. He's going, you need to do something here. You're snoring. What are you doing? Like, you're really, you're snoring. You're sleeping in the bottom of the ship. You don't give a rip about us at all. What is going on here? And Jonah doesn't cry out to his God. And yet, here's the non-Christians, the Gentiles, crying out to all kinds of gods. Oh, God, help us. And later, they're even going to call on Jonah's God. Well, let's just call on his God, too, just to be safe, right? There's a lot going on in Jonah, more than maybe our Sunday school classroom taught us. Okay, we'll, we'll keep going. It's get, getting excited. So they, they cast lots. They want to figure out, okay, casting lots was a way to figure out, you know, kind of di- divine providence. Like, who, who's doing this? Is, you know, how, how is God contro- in this? In verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account an evil has come upon us. They want to know, is Jonah the guy? Is this why we're in this storm? Is it his fault? What is, what's going on here? So they cast lots, and it falls on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So they began to question. This is, this is kind of fascinating. I, I, again, not a sailor. But, but if I was freaking out, I'm probably not going through a lot of questions. Like going, hey, can we sit down and talk about who are you? Where are you from? You know, what brings you here, right? I mean, but, but this is very intentional for the writer here. What's your mission here? Who called you here? They don't know who this Jonah is. Why are you in the belly of the ship sleeping? And why is there a storm 
the lot fell on you. What, what, can you tell us more about what you're doing here? But notice Jonah's response. Doesn't say he's a prophet. He first says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord of God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, fear, maybe worship. You could use the word in Hebrew, fear, worship of, of God. Okay. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was free, fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So there was some conversation that happened at some point that, that he mentioned, yeah, I'm running from God. Like he was just flat out, yeah. Running from God, so I'm here. Now, this is a prophet of Israel, right? I mentioned last week Elijah. When Elijah was called to, to go and, and trust God, he just, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, he goes. He doesn't, doesn't talk back, doesn't resist, just goes, right? That's what a typical um, Israelite prophet would do. But here's Jonah saying, no. Yeah, he even tells these guys, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm running from God. He's called me to go and don't really care. But did you catch he said, I'm a Hebrew? That was his first response. He doesn't start with, I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He starts with his ethnicity, his nationality. I'm a Hebrew. He identifies himself not with God, but with his nationality, with his ethnicity. Then he goes into, and then there's a lot of you know, talk about, well, why does he do that, right? These questions of identity. We'll get into that in our implications in just, just a moment here. But, but he, is, he is flat out just open and honest about the fact, I'm running from God, no big deal. The storm's because of me, the lot fell on me, yeah. It's going, it's going down, it's really bad. And he just seems unmoved by the whole situation. And so the sailors being wise say, well, okay, this guy, the storm's because of this guy. You know, he's some Hebrew and he worships this God. Verse 11, what shall we do to the sea may quiet down for us? Help us out here, Jonah, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon me. So at least he's getting a little honest. That's because of me. Because of my disobedience, right? Nevertheless, the men rode harder. So they, 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 all, they don't even believe him at this point, right? They're just like, sleepy guy in the boat, running from God. I don't think we trust this guy. So they're giving it one last gas. Now, if you read up on you know, uh, sailing in the, those times, the safest place would have been in the harbor, right, on land. So, so if you're in the middle, in the, the eye of the storm, you're going to row like crazy and try to get back to land, right? So they're just like, well, let's just, let's just try one last Get last gaffes to get to shore. But they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord. Now here, here's, the Gentiles are calling out to Jonah's God now. Our God. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. And again, here's this, this group of people, probably all kinds of different worship, all kinds of idols calling out to these gods. And so they're not, they're used to calling out to certain gods, right? The fertility God and the, the, the God of agriculture. So they're just like, well, let's try Jonah's God. Because obviously he's in big trouble and we're in trouble because of this guy. Maybe let's pray to him. And they they cry out to God. This is this is. I hope you're like this is this is not Sunday school. Like your Sunday school teacher didn't teach you any of this. There's so much here. So they picked up Jonah, verse 15, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So exactly as Jonah said, it's my fault. You throw me in the sea. It's probably going to end. It does, and they begin to worship God. 
So right in the midst of Jonah's disobedience, people are still coming to the living God. I love that part of the story. That it's not about how faithful we are, right? God's not, God's not hamstrung by our faithfulness. Isn't that really good news here this morning? Like it's not at all. Like he loves our world so much that he gave his only son. He's not waiting for our faithfulness. And maybe if they just prayed a little more, maybe if they're just a little more faithful. Of course, we want to do those things. Of course, we want to be obedient to these things. But in this story, he's saying, Jonah, I'm showing you my heart, my compassion for all people. That you don't, you don't want to go to Nineveh? Fine, I'm still going to redeem. You don't care about these Gentiles on the boat and you're going to sleep in the bowels and, and get a good tight 12 hours in? I'm still going to redeem them in the end. Because that's how much I love people. And that's the links that I'm willing to go, that even in your disobedience and your unfaithfulness, I'm pursuing a people for my name. It's, it's, it's a fascinating story of revealing more of not just Jonah and how slow to obedience he is just like us, but who God is and his mercy and his grace and his compassion for people, that he could do the same thing and go, these guys don't worship me. He, God knows that, right? They're calling out to all kinds of gods. He's not, he, I mean, they deserve God's wrath and judgment, and here he is saving them, bringing them to safety, because that's who God is, what God loves to do. So, so what are some things that we could pull from Jonah here this morning, some implications and the way I want to frame this just for a few minutes is just to point a couple of these things out is what I call the Jonah mindset. I'm going to call it the Jonah mindset this morning because, because I want us to see that the things that Jonah is doing is not what God would want us to do per se, at least up to this point in Jonah. So the, I want to almost ask this as a question, are we falling into the Jonah mindset? Okay, because the Jonah mindset is all over the, the text the last two, two weeks here. So, so the first, I think, obvious Jonah mindset is our sins aren't hurting anyone and no one will know. That, that Jonah has this, this idea that I can be disobedient to God and I can not listen to his word and everything's going to go fine for me. That's somehow in the recesses of his mind or his heart. That maybe, I'm, maybe he's living after, after old obedience. Maybe he's saying, you know, I, I'm an I'm a Israelite prophet. I've served the Lord. I'm, I've done what is right. I know my people. I know God's going to redeem his people. And yet I want nothing to do with Nineveh. I want nothing to do with these dirty Assyrians and Gentiles. And yet he's li- living in disobedience. God said, I want you to go. And you're saying no. Well, I can just go, I can go hide in the bowels of the ship. I'll be fine. I'm just going to take a nap. God won't find me here. It's fine. It'll blow over, right? But there's something interesting in our text, and maybe you caught it. Um, it took me a little while to see it, but, but notice the, the words that, that the writer uses in, in Jonah in verse um, 3 and in verse 5. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board got, um, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So notice that word down. And then notice in verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship, and the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down, and was fast asleep. What's with all the, is this down just a location? Is that just random? But if you look in the Hebrew, and you, and you look at this text, the writer's trying to show us something. Jonah's, he's, he's trying to go down away from God, away from the presence of the Lord. That's, that's, 
Hebrew is very poetic and does these things all the time. He wants to show that you can't run from God. You can't live in sin and think everything's going to be okay and you won't be found out. He is running. I want to go down away from. I want to go into the belly of the earth. I want to go into the belly of the ship that God can't find me. And I don't have to do the mission that I don't want to do because I don't think that's going to get me the happiness that I want. So he's, he's progressively moving away from God down and down and down, if you will, into the belly of himself into disobedience, into sin. Proverbs uh, 28, 13. I think I have this marked. It says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. That sin has that kind of power, right? Now, now here's, here's what's crazy about sin, because sin makes us crazy. Like, I mean, it's like, makes us crazy. It does make us crazy. Because we believe things that we know are absolutely not true. That, that, that we could live against God's way, God's will, God's commands, and somehow still have joy and peace and all those things that we want. We could go against the universe, essentially the way that God has wired the universe, and somehow still find joy and happiness and security and life and salvation, right? We, we believe those things in our life. Because here's the thing with sin. Often when we are walking in sin or doing things against God's will, we don't get punched in the mouth right away, metaphorically. We don't feel a pain instantly, right? We don't feel a sword in the gut right away, do we? Because just like an addictive drug, at first, it always works. It feels really good. Yeah. Let's get some more of that. But then, when we want to stop, it's got our, its claws in us, doesn't it? And we, we can't let that thing go, right? It could be whatever. I'm not just saying drugs, but, but anything that's addictive, right? We, that, that thing we know is it's against God's way, God's will, God's commands, and yet it, it kind of gets its, its claws in us very subtly. And then the next time when we try to get away from it, it's got its grips in us, doesn't it? And that can be complaining and bitterness unforgiveness, that we keep giving energy to it, life to it, and it just gets its claws deep down into us. It could be gossip. And, and the more we do it, we, we, we get this little shot of, oh, that felt good, but then it's got its grip in us, and so that it's hard to stop doing it, and that's all we end up doing, right? It could be covetousness. It could be all kinds of things that just gets its grips in us and won't let us go. I love this, this quote from an Old Testament scholar. Derek Kidner, he says, Sin sets up strains in the structure of life which can only end in breakdown. Because all the way back to the garden, it only ends in breakdown because, because our separation from God is, is ultimately, it's vertical, it starts there, but then the, the separation goes down into all things, all relationship, the entire creation, the co- entire cosmos. That's why the world doesn't function as it should. So we, we break down our relationship with God. That's why we, we break all the commands, the first, ten, first few commands, you know, have no other gods before you, have no idols, right? We break those, and then what does that do? It flows down into those horizontal relationships because God's not our good, God's not our joy, God's not our, our, our ultimate, right? So then what do we do? We start using people and abusing people rather than loving them. So we want to steal their stuff. We want to take their wife. All right? We want to lie. 
because we care more about our reputation than God's reputation. So, so, so it's this big disintegration when we try to live against the structures that God has placed in our lives. And, and that's exactly what Jonah is believing in these, these moments. It's a little bit what you know, James talks about in the book of James, this kind of what I call the snowball of sin. I find it really fascinating the way he, he describes sin. Um, James chapter 1, verse 13 It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right? That's not that bad. Not that harmless, right? I I, I know we have some fishermen in here, right? Don't be ashamed. You want to stand? I see your hand. I see your hand. Um, right? It's that, that hook, right? That lure just gets in there. It's just kind of there, right? And it just keeps pulling us, enticing us, reeling us in. And so it seems harmless at first. That's not a big deal. I mean, pornography's not a big deal. It's just not. I mean, it's just I have needs and I got to look at stuff, right? So, right? But then it gets its grips on us and now it's I can't stop, right? And I, I need it, right? I can't function without it. And so that, that temptation turns into a desire that's there, right? And it gets its grips, and then it becomes into a full-blown sin. And it's a snowball. And then it's fully grown, and it leads to death, because we know sin is always separation from God. There's no life to be found with sin, because all life is found in God. So the Jonah mindset would be one that we... Um, we, we don't think our sins are hurting us and, and no one's going to know, but just like Jonah, he's going to be found out because you can't escape from the presence of God. But secondly, I think another Jonah mindset that we have to be, be careful of is that when we only begin to care about our own, we only begin to care about our own people, whatever our tribe is. I mean, if we're Christians, we only care about the church, other disciples of, of Jesus. So, so that response of the sailors is, is very interesting compared to the response to Jonah, right? When the, when the, sh- when the uh, sh- storm comes and the ship is breaking apart. You know, the mariners were afraid that they're hurling over cargo. Jonah's down and the ship's sleeping. You know, they say, what are you doing? Why, why, what is going on? How can you be sleeping? He's very unmoved by it. And then they're calling out to their gods. They're calling out to Jonah's God. And here's Jonah, just doesn't say a word to God, doesn't ask for his help. Says, well, you probably should throw me over. It's all my fault. This strange interaction, it's like the, the non-Christians, the Gentiles, are, are more concerned with the ship and the people on the ship than Jonah is. He should be the one that, that's full of grace and compassion because he knows the ultimate grace and compassionate God, right? But he's unmoved by it all. It's, it's an example of how we can only, we oftentimes only care about our own people. But yet, Scripture Old Testament and New Testament is very clear that we're called to do good to all, right? Not just our own. We're not called to just love and care for those that worship who we worship and believe what we believe. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. So yeah, of course we have a responsibility to, to the church and our church family, our brothers and sisters who are in need in any way, shape, or form, whatever that is. But we're also called to do good to everyone. It's called common grace. Why do we believe in the doctrine of common grace? Because Jesus said, rain falls on the just and the unjust in the Sermon on the Mount. What does that mean? 
Rain doesn't fall on you because you're good. Rain falls on you because God is good. Ever think about that? Right? The rain that God waters, it's not because we, there's believers on the earth and he's like, here you go. It's like, if you're a believer or you're an absolute pagan just you know, shooting heroin in your eyeballs and abusing your wife, he says, I'm that kind of God that I'll even send rain. I'll give you a crop because I'm compassionate and gracious. Whether you believe in me or not, even though you're calling out to other gods on this ship, I'm still going to save you in the end. Because rain falls on the just and the unjust. And it's easy for us to only think about our own. Think about Jesus' teachings in Luke chapter 6. Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6 about loving our enemies. But I say to you, um, verse 27, 627 Luke, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That'll preach. That's uncomfortable. But here's, notice Jesus. Jesus isn't just going to say, hey, because I said so. No, he does. never does that. Because you're a Christian, just suck it up. Love your enemies. What does he say? To one who strikes you on the cheek, we'll move down to 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Don't hear a lot of that on social media. Don't hear a lot of that in our media, in our news feeds, do we? He's kind to the ungrateful and to the evil and the evil and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. It's really easy to love people who love you right back, isn't it? Isn't it? Anybody? It's really hard to love people that don't love you back. It's really hard to give generously to people that can't give you anything in return, isn't it? Because what do we do? Well, here you go. Now what are you going to give me? Well, that's not how grace works. That's not how God works. That God is just, is, is just to evil and to the, the Christian. He says, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So everyone that doesn't even give a rip of God, God is still gracious and showing his common grace every single day of their life, even if they don't acknowledge God. The fact they have breath in their lungs, the fact they have kids and a family and a job, and they have rain that comes uh, to provide for them and food on their table. Even if they don't acknowledge God, God is still gracious to them. Now, I know as believers, I, I like to say it this way, I don't think we're better than other people, but I think we're a little better off. And what I mean is in an eternal perspective. It doesn't mean we don't want non-Christians to know Jesus. Of course we do, right? Judgment's still coming. That, that's not off the table. But the, the reality is, yes, Christians, we're still beggars who need grace. We're still sinners who need grace. That, that hasn't changed, just like the non-believer who still needs grace, who still needs their sins for, forgiven. We're a little better off because we are forgiven and we do have grace and we do have mercy and we begin to understand that. But that doesn't make us better than them. Does it? I hope not. Because we're called to even love our enemies and pray for those who abuse us, who don't believe what we 
believe. And, and I think the Jonah mindset would say we're, we only care about those that are like us, right? Here's Jonah. He's just indifferent to these Gentiles on this boat. He's indifferent to Nineveh that he does not want to go to. Because they're not part of the promises, right? But it's funny, even though maybe in his mind he says, well, Israel, that's our people, right? That's, uh, judgment's coming to the other nations. But he, if he knows his scriptures, he knows all the promises that were made to Abraham. And he knows all the promises that were made to Moses and David that says, there's going to be, an, there's going to be a blessing that comes through all nations. Not just Israel. That when God called Abraham to go, Right? To go to a foreign land, he says, I'm going to bless you and every family on the earth that believes. Ultimately, what Paul will say in Galatians is that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, all those promises from Abraham are coming full bore. They're coming right back to you that the entire world is going to be blessed. I have a mission not just for Israel, but also for Gentiles as well. I want to believe Jonah knew that too. But he's saying, nope, God's mercy, God's grace is only for our own. I could mention Luke 10, the Good Samaritan. What's that parable about? Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone in need. And it doesn't matter what they believe. That's what that whole parable is about. I mean, I'm really synthesizing that down. We could preach 10 sermons on it. But that's what, who's my neighbor? The one in need. Everyone else walked over them. Oop, sorry, bud. Sorry, bleeding out on the street. The religious one comes, the the Samaritan comes from from the wrong side of the tracks and loves the one who's not like them, doesn't believe what they believe, takes care of them, goes to great lengths and great sacrifice to care for them and love them and get them back on their feet. He didn't say, hey, can you fill out this theological uh, survey and quiz before I help you? So I want to see where you're at with God. None of that happens. It's easy for us to only care about our own. And I love this. Uh, I think it's Jacques Alul. I'm probably not saying that right. Um, but he was a, a theologian. And uh, he, he says this. These Joppa sailors are pagans, or in modern terms, non-Christians. But the lot of non-Christians and Christians is linked. They are in the same boat. The safety of all depends on what each does. They are in the same storm, subject to the same peril, and they want the same outcome. And this ship typifies our situation. You ever think about we're all in the same boat? We're all image bearers of God, whether we believe or not? So, so when you live in a community and your educational system's not that great, everybody's affected by that. It's not, it's not Christian or non-Christian. If you live in a community in Africa and there's not clean water, right? Does that affect Christian and non-Christian? You bet. <laughs> if there's wars and famines, it affects everybody. It doesn't mean if you believe it or not. We're all in the same boat, right? I feel us getting a little nervous in here, but isn't that true, right? It's so easy each day to forget that, that my neighbors, they may not believe, but they want the same things. That They just want to make a living and get by. They, 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 they just want, want food on their table, right? We all want that. And so it's so easy for us, just like, like Jonah just said, no, I don't really care about them, but, but we're all in the same boat, and the non-Christians at this moment are acting way more Christian than Jonah. And we know that's true, right? There are people in my life that I go, I want their marriage. They don't even believe. They don't even have Jesus. Tell my Christian friends. They have a beautiful marriage, Right? 
And they have gifts and they have talents, but I want them to know Jesus, of course. But right, I mean, there, there, there's no because I'm a Christian that somehow we got marriage figured out, we got all this figured out. Like we have, we're just as mess as everyone else, right? We're all in the same boat. But Jesus' call for us, though, is that we wouldn't hide our light. We're called to be salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount, to go, not hide it under a bushel, but let it be seen so the world, what? Can glorify God. Right? We want to live in such a way, yes, so, so others will, will come to Christ, so others will know this grace and this mercy and this compassion that God has extended to us. We don't hide that. We're not unashamed of that by any means. So it's easy for us to only care about our own. And then I think a third implication is a Jonah mindset would also say that we have an identity that's built on something other than Christ. An identity built on something other than Christ. Isn't it fascinating when, he, when the, the sailors ask Jonah all these questions in verse 8? Tell us whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Because in, the, in ancient Near Eastern time, identifying a certain God would, would kind of identify who you are, right? Who you worship, who you belong to. And so it's, it is fascinating here because what does Jonah first identify as? Hebrew. Not a worshiper of the God of dry land and the sea, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He identifies first with his ethnicity, his nationality, and secondly, religiously. So, so I think the, the danger here is that he has kind of a superficial, shallow identity in Christ at this point. Now, not, you can say it's Old Testament, but it's still. And that's kind of the, the language we'd use. Or in God, right? It's, it's not, I'm a worshiper of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my all in all. He's my identity. Because I think if that was the case and that was real in his life, he's not on a boat going the opposite direction. He's saying, I'll go wherever you want me to, Lord. I'm available. Send me. But when the storm comes, he's saying, no, I'm a Hebrew. And I don't worship who you worship. But my identity is built on something. It's not, not, deep, it's not deep enough. I'm not saying he didn't believe in God. I'm not saying that at all. Actually, you'll see, you know, it'll shift a little bit as we go through the book. He knows the scriptures well. But it's very shallow, isn't it? It's not his all in all. God is not his all in all at this point. And see, that happens to us as well. Is that when we try to build our identity on things other than God, it never can stand, it never can give us what we, we need because any identity other than Christ is temporal and it's not eternal. And I think there's a couple practical results of that. If, if we try to build our lives on something other than God, and so we try to build it on being a good dad or being a good mom or, or being educated or, or we try to, you know, certain uh, uh, class of people or living in a certain neighborhood or, 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 or being seen as, you know, theologically astute or smart or, you know, or funny or, or, or someone who just works really hard and never fails and always, you know, this and that. We, we've, all these identities can get kind of wrapped up rather than having uh, Christ be our ultimate identity. Things go south for us. So one of the things that happens when, that, when our identity is not in crisis is that it prevents us from truly seeing ourselves in light of God and who we really are. Right? We, we create this kind of facade of this is who I am. I'm, I'm a good person. Right? We, we choose these virtues. I, I vote a certain way. I, I educate my kids in a certain way. But, it, but it's hard for us to see who we truly are. 
that just like Jonah, we can become bigoted, we can become foolish, we can become disobedient to God. We can become blind to our own flaws. Isn't that a little bit of the story of Peter? Peter in Matthew 26. Um, if you remember Peter, I mean, just, right, we love Peter because he's just such grace, grace for, for me when I look at Peter. I'm just like, he's just such so foolish. But what does he do, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, Peter, okay, you've been walking with Jesus for, you know, three plus years. You kind of get the gist of what he's about, why he came. And yet, in Matthew 26, verse 30, Peter has the audacity to say this. They sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to him, You will fall away because of me this night. So here's Jesus speaking. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to, to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said, Like, here's Peter. This is the, the Son of God, the God of heaven and earth. He knows his thoughts. He knows he's going to deny him. He just says that, hey, I know some of you are going to bail on me, all of you, actually. He's like, nope, not I, oh Lord. I'm committed to you. I'm all in, God. And we know that's not true for Peter, right? And we know he's insecure, right? Because what happens when they come to arrest Jesus? What does he do? He pulls out a sword and chops off the dude's ear. Even knowing that's, hey, Peter, that's not our play. That's not the mission. We didn't come with the sword. We're doing something else here, right? So he's just like, never, Lord. Takes the guy's ear off. Great moment for Peter. But what does that say? Lord, I'm committed to you, right? I find my identity and my commitment to you. I will never fail you, right? How many of us have failed God in the last week? How many of us have, have not loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves multiple times over? So I build my identity on, I'm committed to you, God. I'm not a failure. I am a good person. Rather than, Peter, resting in the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have given you, that you can rest in the fact that you're loved. And it's not based on your performance, Peter. It's not based on how committed you are. That's religious garbage, that's what every other religion is built on. If you're more committed, God loves you more. The gospel says, phooey. I'd like to say other bad words, but I won't. It's, you're already loved. The cross proved it. Now obey me and, and live for me, right? So this identity is, I'm, I'm a good person. My identity is built on commitment and valor. But, but here's the problem with that. It leaves no room for weakness and failure. None. If I'm, my identity is built on being the smartest in the room, it leads for no room to learn something new or to be corrected. If my identity is built on a particular p- political party, don't get nervous. Do you have room to hear the other side? Your identity is going to say a lot about that. It's in, not in Christ, it's in your political party. Guess what? You have no room to be corrected. You have no room to have a conversation about anything. Don't you dare challenge me on that. If it's just knowledge in general, right? It's being the smartest guy in the room. It's having the PhDs, right? It's just, hey, well, what if you don't actually know everything? Well, guess what? You can't know everything because you're not sovereign God. There's a lot of freedom in that. I love that every day. I don't have to know everything. Praise God. I don't have to be everywhere. Praise God. Only God's everywhere. Right? But we'll find ourselves, right? FOMO. 
Millennials, where are you at? And others, the fear of missing out? It's everywhere. If I'm not in the group, if I'm not on a mountain taking a selfie on Everest, my life is in shambles. The fear of missing out. But if you have an identity in Christ, you're going to inherit the whole earth, by the way. That trip to Europe looks silly if you miss it. You're going to rule and reign with Christ forever. New heavens and a new earth. Maybe it's where I live. You know, if I don't live in a certain part of town or if I'm not associated with certain kinds of people, there's no room to be with other kinds of people, is there? Because my identity is not rooted in Christ. It's rooted in my place I live or my identity or my ethnicity or my class or maybe even my church, right? New City Church gets it right. It's a Bible-believing, Christ-centered, gospel-centered church. Everyone else are going to hell. It doesn't leave much room to have any kind of unity with other brothers and sisters that may have things a little different, right? does it? Right? It doesn't mean we're loose with our theology. It doesn't mean we just whatever goes. But, right, but we can have that mindset, right? It's a Jonah mindset that we've built our identity on something other than God. So I think it prevents us from seeing who we are, but it also prevents us from respecting others who aren't like us. That's the other side of that. Because when you're secure in Christ, guess what? Someone that believes something differently, you don't have to blow them up. You don't have to yell and scream at them. Yeah, you want to tell them, hey, this is what I believe. This is the truth of, of what I believe about the scriptures, about God, about Christ, of course. But we don't have to come at them with guns blazing and beat them over the head with the Bible. Somebody, you know, we're middle class, we're, we're upper class, we're whatever class, and then we, we get up next to someone who's poor and doesn't have anything. I don't go with them and goes like, just get your act together, dude. What's going on here? Why are you living like this? When my identity is built in Christ, I realize that everything I have is grace. I didn't choose to live in Long Beach, California in 1979 with clean water and a roof over my head and opportunity for education. I didn't choose any of that. That's my story, by the way. Do the math. I'm almost 40. Yes, I know. I'm not mad about it. I am mad, though. I do hurt my arms by drinking water and pull hamstrings by sleeping. But other than that, I'm fine. We're good. Hope there's a few more years in me. Right? So my identity becomes something. <laughs> Steve just said, wait till you're 60. Amen. But it prevents us from loving and respecting others who aren't like us. Jonah has no concern for these sailors. He has no concern for Nineveh at this point. Because his identity is built on something else other than God. And people become the other. They become faceless, forgetting that they're made in the image of God. The same people that Christ came to redeem. So I, I love this part of Jonah because it makes me really uncomfortable. And it reveals a lot of things about my own heart. And hopefully it's doing that to you even in this morning. Um, that I never would want to stand on a stage ever. And hopefully I haven't done this for eight years or however long we've been here. Um, and said, you know, this is for you and not for me, and not things that, that I have to wrestle with every moment of my life, um, to not be like, have that Jonah mindset, 
That wouldn't be fair to you. And, and, and believe me, preaching's not that great. Let me, I'll let you in a little insight. Because um, every week I have to sit with the scriptures and remind myself how terrible I'm doing at this. And it's almost, if I'm preaching a sermon on anger, I can tell you there's some anger coming out of me that week for whatever reason, right? It's like, oh, I'm not angry. And then the whole week, oh, I thought, oh, right? I mean, because I'm going to preach on anger, right? Or the week you have to talk about the Jonah mindset and realize just how much do I really love people? How much do I build my identity on things other than Christ? Not fun. But I'll accept it as God's grace in my life and God's call in my life. So, so the good news here this morning is that Jesus is the better Jonah. I said that last week. That Jonah was a failure, just like every Bible character. That they didn't keep the end of their bargain. They didn't fulfill all their promises, Right? But, but, but Jesus is, is the better Jonah. J- J- Jonah's thrown into the sea and the, the storm stops. But you see, Jesus is, is sent into the storm of death and, and hell and God's wrath to bring us to shore. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus fulfilled his command, fulfilled his mission of the Father to come and live and, and to die and to rise again. Jonah was a coward and he didn't give a rip about anyone but himself, at least at this point in his mission here. But Jesus said, I love the whole world that I'm willing to lay my life down for them. Not to condemn it, but to love it and save it and redeem it. I'm going to quote Jacques Elul again. I think this is really helpful. At this point, Jonah takes up the role of the scapegoat. The sacrifice he makes saves them. The seas calm down. He saves them humanly and materially. Jonah is an example of the Christian way. What counts is that the story is in reality the precise imitation of an infinitely vaster story and one which concerns us directly. What Jonah could not do, but his attitude announces, is done by Jesus Christ. He is it, excuse me, he it is who accepts total condemnation. Jonah is not Jesus Christ. But he is the one of the long line of types of Jesus, each representing an aspect of what the Son of God will be in totality. And if it is true that the sacrifice of a man who takes his condemnation can save others around him, then this is far more true when the one sacrifice is the Son of God himself. It is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves. And out of Jonah's mouth, next week in chapter 2 is he makes one of the greatest confessions of all of scripture that says the Lord saves. He knows that because what happens in verse 17 of this chapter? The Lord saves Jonah too by a fish swallowing him up. So as much as We love Jonah as a Sunday school class. It is so wrought with God's mercy and grace. Here's this guy who's disobedient in every way. Here's this guy who doesn't give a rip about Gentiles and about people that are different than him. And yet, what does God do? He hurls him into the ocean, and then a fish comes and swallows him up. Why? To save him. Maybe from himself. And then eventually to even use him to go to Nineveh eventually. God is always, and you know, we're talking about this, God is always a God of second chances and third, and fourth, and a hundredth. (laughs) And he's the one who goes into the storm of death so that we could have life. Jonah deserved to die, but God saves him. And that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us every single week. We take it every, every week as a church. 
is to remind us that there was one better than Jonah that came to redeem us. One who, who saw us in the pit, who saw us in the ocean drowning. And he didn't just throw out a, a, a life preserver and say, hey, be like me, imitate me. He actually comes all the way to pull us to shore. We don't need an example. We need a savior. We don't need an example of heroic living. We need someone that's going to redeem us and bring us to shore and bring us into the family and forgive us of all of our sins. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, that, that, that he was innocent in every way, and yet he was willing to go to the cross for our sins. And so if you're a believer in Christ, we just invite you to come to the table. The way we take communion is we break off a piece of the bread, we dip it in the cup, there'll be two lines in the front. If you have any kind of allergies, we have gluten-free allergy bread there in the middle. You can take one of those as well. Um, and if you're not a, a believer in Christ, we just ask you to stay seated. We have some prayers in the city life that you can take a look at and think about that. We've all been there at some point. But, but one question that, that Jonah raises for me, and this is for believers and non-believers, is just, what are we running from? Because this is a book about running. We're going to run away from God, or we're going to run to God. And we can avoid God, as I said last week, in, 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 in different ways. We can become religious and still avoid God, and we can become irreligious and still avoid God, just like the story of the prodigal son the younger and the older brother, right? We can go and sell off all of our inheritance, or we can be right at home with the Father's care and just be bitter and angry that we didn't get what you know, we thought we deserved, right? And we can, both of those people and, both of, and all of us need the gospel of grace. I hope you know that. I hope you're walking in that. I hope you're, you're examining the ways in which maybe you have a Jonah mindset just like I've done all week and I'm doing right now. So maybe before we come to the table, maybe we just take a moment and say, God, is there there's some things in me that, that I kind of see that I'm kind of being like a Jonah? Ignoring your word, be, living in sin, thinking I'm going to be okay, and maybe I'm not treating people as I should or not you know, indifferent to other people. God, show me those, those things. So with that, let us pray. Father, we pray by the Holy Spirit that you would reveal those things to us. It wouldn't do us any good this morning to just be hearers of your word if we're not going to be doers as well. That you say that it's just deceiving ourselves. But God, are there places in us, are, are there places where we do have that Jonah mindset, where the, the places where we just don't care about other people because they're not like us, they don't believe what we believe? Are there places where we're building our identity on, on things that are just aren't going to last? Our, our work, our home, our, our kids, our success, money, security, power, whatever it is, politics, God, whatever it is, reveal those things to us that, to know that, that our greatest joy and our greatest identity and our greatest hope and salvation is not in Jesus Christ, but it's in something else. So reveal those things to us, O oh God. And we know you are gracious and kind to forgive, and we want to lay those things before you, O oh God. And so thank you for Jesus, the greater Jonah, who goes to the depths of the oceans, who goes to the pit, so that we could be brought to shore, so that we could be brought into the family of God. Thank you, Lord. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.